ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, fantastic show this week. Joining me will be Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify. And of course, we just passed through the midway point of 2022, so Tom and I are going to look back on everything we've seen from ETFs in the first half of the year. We'll look at the best performing ETFs, the worst performing ETFs. We'll talk new ETF launches. I have a few thoughts on ETF flows and performance overall. And then we'll spend a few minutes looking ahead to the second half of the year. I'm very curious to hear what Tom will be watching for in the world of ETFs. And I promise you now, I will try my absolute best not to make any references to spot Bitcoin ETFs this week. Uh, I'm so fatigued on that topic. I guess many of you uh, are as well. So I'm going to try and stay disciplined and not talk about what happened last week. In any event, I'll start with Tom. I'll then be joined by Jim Schmeagel, Chief Investment Officer at SEI, who's a brand new ETF entrant. And if you're not familiar with SEI, Look, this is not some upstart asset manager. SEI has about $1.3 trillion in assets under management or advisement. And if you think about this bigger picture, this really continues a trend we've seen throughout this year of larger name brand asset managers getting involved in ETFs, right? We've seen Capital Group, uh, Newberger Berman, uh, DoubleLine, among others, so I'm going to visit with Jim about why SEI made the decision to move into ETFs. And then we'll look at their first four products they launched, which these are all actively managed. Uh, they're all factor-based ETFs covering quality, momentum, value, and low vol. They're all in the large cap space. And these are low cost too, 15 basis points. So we're going to discuss SEI's overall ETF strategy here. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Nancy Davis, founder and chief investment officer at Quadratic Capital Management. Of course, Nancy is behind the $1.7 billion Quadratic Interest Rate Volatility and Inflation Hedge ETF, ticker IVOL, I-V-O-L. And we'll certainly talk about that ETF, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time discussing the current fixed income markets. 
and the significant challenges facing bond investors right now. So I keep saying, I think this is the single most challenging area of a portfolio for most investors. When you think about broad bonds being down, what, 10, 11% this year, we have inflation at, at four decade highs, the prospect of additional rate hikes, but at the same time, uh, there's potentially a recession on the horizon if we're not already in one. So you're going to get to hear from a true expert on how she's viewing the various segments of the uh, bond markets right now. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Tom Lydon. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, 600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, great having you back on the podcast. How was the uh, long 4th of July weekend for you? It was great, Nate. I got a little bit of a sunburn, uh, stayed hydrated, and I know it was a little toasty there in Kansas City. Did you guys have fun? Oh, man, yeah. It's blazing here. I think we're going to hit somewhere around 100 degrees. The issue is the humidity. It's just uh, it's brutal. You walk outside, you can cut the air with a, with a knife. But no, had a great weekend. Had a little bit of time out on the lake, uh, spent some time with the family. I finally saw Top Gun, uh, which I I, got to tell you, it's not often that you see a sequel better than the original. I think the the sequel was actually better than the original. I don't know if you've seen that movie yet. I have it. I'm dying to. And uh, it's just great. I mean, it's like Tom Cruise's Benjamin Button. He seems to get younger and younger. (laughs) I don't know how he does it. (laughs) We got to figure out the, uh, the secret there. All right. So uh, so look, I'm looking forward to this. We're going to recap the first half of the year in ETFs and then look ahead to the remainder of the year. And I, I think it goes without saying, obviously, it's been a highly eventful year in the markets. That's clearly reflected in what we've seen out of ETFs. And so I, I thought, let's start with the best performing ETFs this year, which that definitely tells at least part of the story in the markets. And I have the list here, and I always like to exclude leverage and inverse uh, ETFs. I just, I like to clear those out. I think those those add some noise. So if we exclude leverage and inverse products, the top performing ETF in the first half of the year was the United States Gasoline Fund, ticker UGA, which that holds front month uh, futures on gasoline. So that was up 65%. And of course, I think we all can attest to that if, you, uh, if you've been to the pump recently. Uh, but, but look, Tom, I'm not going to go through the entire list here. But, but if you look at the top 20 performing ETFs in 2022, listen to this. I count 18 of them as being energy or commodity related. 18 of the top 20. And some other ETFs on the list include uh, DBE, the Invesco Energy Fund. You have UNG, the United States Natural Gas Fund. XLE, the uh, Energy Select Sector Spider. But a, a ton of oil and natural gas ETFs on the list. This has really been the year of energy, right? I mean, if you just look at where the sector performance has been. Well, it makes all the sense in the world for multiple reasons. You know, coming out of the financial crisis, uh, we're, we're flying more, we're driving more. And, oh, by the way, inflation's through the roof. And we've got uh, some conflict overseas, which are uh, is definitely affecting supply, especially in the Europe area. So that, that, that it makes a lot of sense. The big question is, Will it stabilize? You know, we're a little above uh, $100 a barrel right now. 
the big question is with demand continuing to increase and most importantly, uh, the prices of the pump, as you point out, Nate, are scary. These are prices that we haven't seen in a long time. I mean, I know in the Midwest, it's areas that, that are up there, but out in California, where you pull it up to the gas station, you're paying over six bucks, six bucks a gallon sometimes. It's crazy. No, I agree. We filled up the tank uh, yesterday. My wife did in her car. It was 100 bucks, and we don't have that big of a car. Yeah. Uh, it's ridiculous. Well, l- l- let me ask you this. I mean, I-, I think some people, energy was so beaten up. If you go back to, what, you know, 16, 17, 18, it's now having its moment in the sun. I think there was somewhat of a, a value play there, right? Do you think this is sustainable, or do you think it's dependent upon these other factors you're mentioning? I just wonder you know, this Russia-Ukraine conflict doesn't look like it's going to resolve itself anytime soon. Um, you know, I look at some of the other supply-demand factors, uh, both here in the U.S., and then you look into the Middle East. I just wonder when when this may actually, uh, you know, sort of alleviate itself. I, I don't see any real promise on the horizon from my perspective. Well, agree, and I think this is something that we're going to have to uh, get used to. Look, the Fed has said their number one goal is to get inflation under control. Uh, And there are little green shoots that are popping up, especially in the housing market where things might be settling. But we may be dealing with $100 barrel oil for an extended period of time, and, and I think we have to get used to that. The Fed's job is to try to pull things back a little bit without us put going into recession. This Goldilocks scenario may or may not be a reality, but we don't want to be in a recession for an extended period of time, which means back like in the uh, 1970s, early 80s, we had inflation that went on for five years. Uh, We haven't seen that in a long period of time, especially for those of us that are managing money or uh, involved in making important decisions. So as an advisor, Nate, I know this is something that you're dealing with regularly, you're talking to your clients about, and the great thing is we have a lot of options to diversify client portfolios outside of traditional stocks and bonds. Well, that's a perfect segue. So I mentioned that uh, 18 of the top 20 ETFs were energy or commodity related. Um, I'm sure some people out there are wondering, well, what are the other two ETFs? So let me give those to you because it's right on the topic that you're hitting on. The other two ETFs are the Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF, ticker PFIX. That was up 50% in the first six months of the year. And then the other one, uh, I I guess surprising just because I wasn't as familiar with this uh, product, the KFA Mount Lucas Index Strategy ETF, ticker KMLM. Uh, from Crane Shares, up 31%. Any thoughts on either of those or, or just alts in general, to your to your point? Yeah, well, um, we've known that uh, flows into alts continue to increase at a decent rate, although they're just a drop in the buck- bucket compared to overall ETFs. I know you've got Nancy coming on later on, and she's going to talk about hedging against higher interest rates, but PFIX, the Simplify Interest Rate Hedge ETF, does a great job of long-dated options on the U.S. Treasuries, and that's really the makeup of what we've seen in that uh, in that ETF. Uh, KMLM is excellent in the fact that we had a webcast a week or so ago with the portfolio manager, again, kind of sub-advisor t- to uh, the folks at Crane Shares. Uh, they not only do trend following with commodities, but they'll do trend following with currencies which are also important. We've seen huge swings in currency prices with the strong dollar. 
that we're not spending enough time talking about. Nate, I, th- I know you remember about seven years ago when we saw a strong dollar and um, uh, at DWS we saw the currency hedge ETFs go through the roof as far as gaining assets. That trend seems to be starting back up again. And for advisors, we can not only get into areas like commodities, but also currencies in a very tax effective way. I just think it's interesting finally seeing some of these alternative strategies work because I've talked on this podcast for years. I I think a lot of advisors and investors gave up on these because they just weren't working over the past decade. But now you look at the two ETFs I gave. I went a little bit further down the list. A couple of other ETFs that jumped out at me. The IMGP DBI Managed Future Strategy ETF, ticker DBMF, that's up 25%. So that holds both um, long and and short positions and and primarily futures contracts across really a broad range of assets, stocks, bonds, currencies, to your point, commodities. Another ETF that jumped out at me was the Advisor Shares Ranger Equity Bear ETF. So ticker HDGE, good ticker, hedge. That's also up uh, over 25%, and that just goes short a basket of stocks. It's actively managed. Right. But, but you know, I, I think about flows here. So going back to the uh, the, the two ETFs that you, you covered, PFIX and KMLM, I looked year-to-date. PFIX has over $100 million in inflows year-to-date. KMLM is nearing $100 million in inflows. That That's pretty big for, for products like that, where you know these aren't from one of the, the big three issuers. And I'm sure you saw there was a big piece last week from the uh, the Wall Street Journal. It's a pretty interesting piece, but they noted that, listen to this, more than $21 billion has gone on, uh, gone into liquid alt mutual funds and ETFs this year. And that was only through May. That puts them on pace to beat last year's record of about $38 billion. So again, it just shows you that investors are clearly looking for hedges right now, and I think alternatives to, to bonds in particular. Yeah. And, and Nate, just to add a couple things. Um, I think for the average person out there or for the average advisor that's listening, trends stay in place until they don't. A lot of people are concerned that especially the Fed uh, on their heels moving forward to try to fight inflation, they may be able to bring it back a little bit, but it may be with us for a while. So don't feel like you're going in and you're picking the top here, number one. And number two, Make sure you're allocating enough. So if you do have an allocation, it means something. I think a lot of people are just putting their toe in the water where it's not going to move the needle if we continue to see these trends in in a a certain direction. And this is one of the things that I'm hearing from a lot of active managers out there and the people behind some of these ETFs. This is a trend that is just developing now. We haven't seen it in, in almost decades. So you have to make sure if you're participating that it's meaningful enough to be able to do what it's supposed to do, which is hedge your portfolio. I think excellent words of wisdom. I'll just add, by the way, on the Fed, you know, I think the big question out there is the the Fed can certainly impact the demand side of the equation. But, uh, you you know, I think the the question is, is it the supply side that's really causing inflation right now? And that's not something that they can really directly impact. So I think that's going to be something to to watch play out here in the second half of the year. Um, Tom, if we look at broader ETF performance and flow. So, you know, as we were just hitting on, the reason investors are looking at alternative strategies is because pretty much nothing else is working. And I I tweeted this out on Friday. If you look at year-to-date performance from uh, some popular asset classes and ETFs, I would say asset classes that I think most advisors have exposure to, it's not pretty. 
and, and I'm going to just rattle these off real quick. I'm not going to go through the the, the the full list of ETFs, but I mean, broad commodity. So something like PDBC, that's up 28%. That makes sense. We just covered that with the best performing ETFs, right? Gold is down 2%. You look at short-term debt, something like Mint, that's down 2%. Broad U.S. bonds down 10%. Emerging markets down 17%. Developed international stocks down 20%. Of course, SPY down 20%. B&Q, so you look to REITs, down 21%. TLT, 20-plus year treasuries, down 22%. Small cap, so an ETF like IWM, down 24%. Uh, QQQ, down 29%. I'm going to toss in Bitcoin there as well, so so uh, BITO, BITO, that's down 60%. You and, couldn't help yourself, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But, but look, just to reiterate how difficult things have been, the first half of 2022 was the worst first half for the S&P 500 since 1970. So 52 years. It was also the worst start to a year ever for broad U.S. bonds. And I'm going to give you one other data point here, and then I'd love your reaction. If you look at first half ETF flows, they were a bit muted compared to last year. I, I was checking yesterday. I think I'm close. Somewhere around $300 billion so far this year. And, and look, certainly some context is important with ETF flows, right? That's much better than the... Uh, the, the billions hemorrhaging out of mutual funds. But I do think the flows show we are in a more challenging market environment. So I, I don't know, Tom, as you hear the, those performance figures, I mean, any any thoughts on overall ETF performance here? Um, and basically, there's no place to hide when you look at this. Every area has been hit, and it's basically been commodities. But the interesting thing year to date, uh, commodity flows at $16 billion is increase the overall basket by 10%. But other areas like leverage are up 42% in assets, uh, inverse 27%, currency 33%. There's a lot of trading that's going on, and there are a lot of opportunities for short-term gains. Advisors overall tend to have asset allocation models, but more than ever when we're surveying them, they do short-term trend following in order to offset some of these moves that we've seen in traditional indexes. And I think that's key and critical. The interesting thing, though, is in the first quarter in U.S. fixed income, we actually had negative flows. That's come back strongly as more of feeling like the Fed's recent movement is getting things back under control. And with that, we're probably going to continue to see flows in fixed income. Equities, uh, I think it's not as though investors have greater confidence in equity markets these days. It's just that they're selling mutual funds because they can mutual funds continue, continue to see great redemptions. Tom, we touched on, <clears throat> excuse me, the best performing ETFs this year. Let, let's quickly touch on the worst performing as well. And looking at the list, besides the Russia ETFs, which those basically uh, went to zero, the worst performers are all blockchain or crypto ETFs. With the Global X blockchain ETF, ticker BKCH, that's pulling up the rare down 77%. Uh, but you, you look at some of these other ones. I mean, DAPP, the Vanek Digital Transformation ETF, RIGS, R-I-G-Z, BitQ from Bitwise, uh, Crypt, CRPT. I could go on. These were all down over 70%. Now, you, you look at Bitcoin, as I, I mentioned earlier, that was down about 60%. And I think some people like to view blockchain ETFs as like a, uh, a leverage play on Bitcoin. It looks like we got a little bit of that. But any thoughts on the blockchain ETFs, I mean, down 70% plus pretty much across the board. And, and remember, yeah. don't bait me on the spot Bitcoin ETF topic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we won't go down that rabbit hole, but a couple things. And we looked at 
just the Bitcoin ETFs. And uh, although total assets are down, net shares are up. So we're starting to see people buying in at these levels. And when you think about advisors, uh, you know, we do the survey with Bitwise and Matt Hogan every year. Yeah. Uh, we're talking to them about interest among their clients for cryptocurrency allocation. That's continuing to be year over year uh, increasing and more and more advisors are allocating. The fact that there are uh, ETFs that represent cryptocurrency, uh, uh, bit, uh, Bitwise and, uh, is, is really up to speed on all this stuff going on. And we're talking to advisors about it regularly. If you feel like this pullback is one of those opportunities, and many advisors do, they're starting to put their toe in the water for the first time, and it's actually on platform in the way of, uh, of buying these Bitcoin ETFs. The other thing to point out here as it, as it relates to the blockchain, most of this big decline is made up of miners. Miners are down 80 90% off the high. And if you feel that we're going to see a rebound at any point in time, or if you're a long-term investor and you feel like the blockchain and Bitcoin mining is something that's going to be around, you probably won't see an opportunity to let, like this for a long time. There are a lot of publicly traded miners out there that are trading for pennies on the dollar. And that's just something to think about for clients where it, you can buy them through your Schwab account or your Fidelity account and, and all your brokerage accounts, just putting a small allocation in there may sat, satisfy your clients as far as saying, hey, I'm in the game now and my advisor did the right thing in waiting for this buying opportunity. Well, one thing we know for sure with these blockchain ETFs, and, and this is not investment advice, but uh, if they can go down 70, 80 percent, they can go up 70 to 80 percent pretty quickly as well, right? Uh, I mean, it. it can move both ways. So, um, all right, Tom, let's continue our, our, our quick tour here through the world of ETFs. A few minutes left. I, I want to briefly touch on new launches. So by my count, we saw over 200 new ETFs coming to market in the first six months of 2022, which I think is pretty remarkable, again, just given the market environment we've been in. But but here's my my quick question for you. If you had to pick one new ETF so far this year, do you have a favorite? I do. I went through the list, Nate, and what I came up with was the Dimensional Emerging Market Value ETF. Interesting. Uh, you know, our, our friends Meb Faber, uh, Rob Arnott, both have been saying emerging market stock valuations are at a level we haven't seen in over 20 years. And, and you and I talk about this regularly as advisors. When you don't panic during these times, you look for opportunities. Uh, and as investors here in the U.S., we have been really heavily on the home country bias. Advisors and investors have not allocated enough overseas, especially in emerging markets. Uh, this ETF has a price to book of 0.93. Most of the stocks in the ETF have PEs that are in the single digits. You don't often see these types of opportunities. So if you've got a long-term horizon, this is something to consider. And the folks at Dimensional have done a great job not only converting their mutual funds, but bringing to the surface areas of opportunity at the right time. So I really like that ETF. So I was looking at the list, and I don't know that I would call these my favorite, but the ones that really have my attention are these ones that just launched last week from Nightshares ETFs. Did you see these? I did. Yeah, so, did, the, yeah. so these will, for listeners, these will own the S&P 500, and I believe there, there's two of them. I believe the other one's the Russell 2000, but only while the market is closed. And so there's research that that's when the, the, the bulk of gains occur. 
Now, I think that the counter and what everybody will be watching for is whether or not transaction costs eat up any, you know, outsized performance. But I'm fascinated to watch those, just watch how those work and and see what kind of returns those deliver compared to something like uh, SPY. And, and by the way, uh, for, for what it's worth, the top new launch this year by assets is actually the Goldman Sachs Market Beta US 1000 Equity ETF, ticker GUSA. So a little uh, a little gem there. Tom, just a couple minutes left. What will you be watching for in the second half of the year, just in terms of ETF stories? Um, so I know some people listen to this and say, you know, what is he thinking? But China is a different beast these days. Uh, it's a, a different situation. It's in a recession, coming out of recession. We're seeing uh, not higher interest rates, but more increased monetary policy that's helping over there. Uh, we're coming out of the COVID quarantine. Travel and leisure stocks are starting to get on fire there. The big uh, holdout, I would say, is China stocks listed on U.S. exchanges. Many of them are also listed on Hong Kong exchanges now, too. But the valuation of some of these Chinese stocks, especially the Internet stocks, have really come back to uh, normal areas. So I like KWeb, uh, uh -huh. the Crane Shares China Internet ETF. Again, long-term time horizon here, but China's not going away anytime soon. It's always had some bumps of the road. I think second half is going to be its time. Uh, that's something to think about. And then the other thing is the dollar is going to continue to be stronger. It's had a great run so far this year, up 10%. It's up 17% in the last year. During times of uncertainty, you go back and look at history a lot of people tend to go to the most trusted currency, which is in the U.S. dollar. The Invesco UUP is something to, again, diversify if you want a quick currency play. Tom, I think we've done a great job of covering everything across the ETF space here in the first six months of the year. It just dawned on me, one thing we haven't talked about is uh, ARC in Kathy Wood, which is something that you and I have talked about quite a bit in, in the past. And obviously, it was a very difficult first half of the year for, for Kathy Wood. I mean, you look at ARKK, that was down nearly 60%. Though, interestingly, it still took in like $1.5 billion, which is uh, amazing. But do you think they can rebound here in the second half of the year? Are, are you still tracking that story? Well, they were old enough to go through a few bear markets, and we understand what separates the men from the boys is how we operate, and we remove the emotions. Long term, we continue to be great fans of ARC and Kathy Wood. Um, that a disruptive technology is going to continue to be a part of our ecosystem going forward. So again, if you haven't had Kathy Wood in the past in those allocations, put a three to five percent allocation. If you happen to buy at the high and you put five percent in, and now it's two and a half percent, up that to five percent again. Five years from now, I, I can't imagine that you won't be happy. Kathy Wood and, and Ark aren't going away. They're going to continue to be great players. Well, Tom, excellent insight as always. Uh, really looking forward to seeing what happens in the world of ETFs here moving forward in the, in the second half of the year. But love talking ETF shop with you. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Nate. That was Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. 
iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. My next guest is Jim Schmiegel, Chief Investment Officer at SEI, who currently manages or administers some $1.3 trillion in assets. And back in May, they made their ETF debut. They entered the ETF arena by launching their first four ETFs. These are all factor-based ETFs. They're all actively managed, and they're all extremely low cost, 15 basis points, which I'm sure we'll get into. I now have uh, Jim on the line with me. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. All right. So look, even though you do have some $1.3 trillion in assets under management or advisement, my sense is that not everyone is familiar with SEI, especially I think in the more ETF-focused crowd. So I thought a good place to start would be just give us a quick snapshot of who SEI is for people unfamiliar with the firm. Sure. Happy to do that. Uh, as you say, it's not too surprising. We do tend to uh, kind of act in the, in the background in a lot of different ways. First and foremost, a lot of those numbers that you put out is really from our administration business. So we do do an awful lot of asset administration, including uh, quite a bit on the ETF side where, where we're kind of in the background doing the kind of back office administration for ETFs. Uh, but we do, we are active managers uh, in an OCIO context, meaning an outsourced CIO. So we work with independent investment advisors. We work with large pensions and endowments, providing uh, full actively managed uh, advice solutions uh, for them. That business is roughly about $200 or so billion. Uh, within that, particularly on the advisor space, we're also an ETF strategist. This is something that we've been involved in for uh, quite some time, and we run about $12 billion as an, as an ETF strategist. Most of those ETFs underlying that program are of the passive nature, uh, so this foray for us is a, is, a, is a bit different, but hopefully that gives you uh, a little bit background in SEI and uh, a little bit more understanding as to where I'm coming from. Yeah, so in terms of this foray, let's talk about the decision to enter the ETF market at this point, of course, under your own brand. And, you know, I think just taking a step back, obviously ETFs have been around for, you know, what, nearly 30 years. There's now nearly 3,000 U.S. listed products. Why enter the space now? What was the uh, impetus? I think it was a it was a bunch of, of different things. As, as I mentioned, you know, we we've certainly been in, involved in the space uh, for 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 quite some time, mostly from an administration and from a strategist perspective. Uh, but our uh, internal quantitative equity uh, asset manager, uh, we've been running uh, internally managed uh, quantitative equities in a, in a factor perspective for quite some time now. It, it's really just a confluence of events. We feel as though those strategies have matured enough and have uh, excellent track records, uh, and the and the comfort and the and the market. We we felt as though it reached a point in time where utilizing ETFs in an account where you're also utilizing mutual funds and maybe separately managed accounts 
these kind of this hybrid nature that we see with high net worth individuals. I think we've just reached a point where we felt as though what are we what are we waiting for anymore? Uh, let's use our quantitative equity strategies, which we think are are really unique, and there's a there's a, a there's a niche for them to play in this space. Uh, we thought the opportunity was good, and we decided to go ahead and take it. Well, let's talk about those strategies. So, as I mentioned, you currently offer four ETFs. These all cover the large cap U.S. equity space. Uh, but again, you're pursuing different factor exposure with each of these. So let me rattle these off for listeners. There's the SEI Enhanced U.S. Large Cap Quality Factor ETF, ticker SEIQ. There's a Momentum Factor ETF, ticker SEIM, a Value Factor ETF, ticker SEIV, and then a uh, Low Volatility ETF, ticker SELV. Which, by the way, Jim, I love how you uh, work the SEI brand into these ticker symbols. <laughs> you don't always see that, right? Because it's not easy to do for a lot of uh, ETF issuers, but nice work on that. Look, yeah, thanks. Especially now, as you said, with 3,000 or so tickers out there, yeah. we were shocked they were all still available. I love that. But look, let's let's maybe take the value factor ETF. I'll just pick that one because value is finally showing some uh, meaningful outperformance versus growth right after a long period of underperformance. So explain how you're gaining exposure to the value factor. Yeah, so the value the value ETF, SEIV, just like the rest of them, the first thing I would just emphasize here is that these are actively managed products. So we're no different than any other quantitative equity manager out there. Uh, we are looking at this through that kind of active lens. A lot of the factory ETFs that you'll find out there are, and this isn't a knock on them, they, they definitely serve a purpose, but they're, they're relatively simplistic. They're, they're completely kind of systematic. They may use one or maybe two uh, kind of inputs to their factor construction, some that we're all, all very, very familiar with, price to book or price to earnings, uh, really in a, from a historical perspective, not necessarily a forward-looking perspective. We're constructing this ETF to be value-focused, and we're constructing it to be extremely diversified. So the inputs to creating uh, our value exposure are much more advanced than what you'll find in the marketplace. There's multiple inputs. They're actively managed inputs, so they're inputs that are going to evolve over time. I mean, if we think about the history of, of factor investing, you know, it goes back all the way to Fama French. We're talking about 30 years ago. Um, and, of, and, of, and, of course, there's seminal uh, papers being, being written on these things. But, you know, the market does, you know, tend to change. The market does evolve. There's better ways to approach these things. You know, the kind of companies that were around 30 years ago, very asset heavy, aren't necessarily the kind of companies that are around today, which may be more uh, asset light. And, you know, there's also situations such as COVID where, you know, kind of looking at, you know, price to earnings or, or price to book in a historical perspective, you know, can, can cause a little bit of issues when you have uh, a very short and sharp, sharp drop in the market like we saw in 2020. Uh, when we think our approach, which is extremely diversified, using multiple metrics to construct our value exposure, we think is, is the better way to go. In that description, I really hear you emphasizing the active management. Well, let's pull on that thread just a little bit. I mean, how much active discretion is there in these ETFs? And I know you're leaning heavily on the quant side for, for some of the, the inputs here, but how much manager discretion is there at the end of the day? So they, we like to, they are fully active. However, it is a quantitative approach. So we have, a, we have quantitative models, and, and those models that we use, we use to construct each of these factor exposures. You know, it's, it's also worth kind of, kind of pointing out that 
factors, I mean, I think the, the end investor is just now kind of getting comfortable with what we even mean by factors, right? There's a, there's a way of organizing an index, which is by market capitalization, and there's other ways of organizing indices by these other exposures that we're talking about. But it, it, it is important to emphasize these things aren't necessarily independent of one another. So, you know, they might be independent in terms of construction, meaning that if you're taking a simplistic approach to creating a value ETF by looking at uh, kind of price to earnings, you, you're looking at it and constructing it through a value lens. But the realization is you're getting other exposures in there, right? So let, let's take a like where we are today. You can imagine that up until recently, the energy sector had quite a bit of momentum behind it. But it, honestly, it was also a, still a value sector if you look at it from a pure PE perspective. So these things aren't mutually exclusive. So the active component here comes in not only in the identification and evolution of the inputs that we use to construct our, our factors, but also the recognition of the other exposures that we're getting in this particular ETF. So you know, that can be something like, we know that we're gonna get a little bit of momentum with our value, just based on what's happening in the market. We might be getting a little bit of quality, even low volatility. There's low volatility names that are value as well, and there's high volatility names that are value. We can actively manage all of these to make sure that the majority of the exposure that you're getting in these ETFs is value exposure, but that you're also getting positive exposure to the other factors that we make, uh, that we think make sense longer term, and therefore you have a diversified um, collection uh, of uh, equity factors that we think pay off over the longer term, but has a clear and distinct focus on those uh, that are mentioned in the, in the headline and in the name of the ETF. Lastly, in terms of discretion, look, there are always going to be those situations that pop up. And, you know, we're, it, it, COVID gives us tons of examples of all of these things, the GameStop examples, the Peloton examples, where if you do any kind of quantitative work, these things will pop up from time to time. And look, we need to ask ourselves, when those situations arise, do we want to include them in the portfolio? Those are the kind of one-offs where we'll take discretion and we'll definitely uh, exclude them or minimize their impact from the portfolio. But in general, the active management here is in the creation of the inputs and more importantly, the evolution of the inputs going forward. One thing I'm curious about here, you know, anytime I see a new ETF issuer, and especially one that has a, a long established history in active mutual funds or, or SMAs, I'm always curious, did you consider the non-transparent ETF wrapper at all? Were you concerned at all about putting your secret sauce out where everyone can see it? We weren't. We weren't necessarily concerned. It, it's 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 a really interesting topic because what's what's fascinating about it is if you isolate the actively managed ETFs, you know the percentage that go the transparent route is is about ninety plus percent. So it's it's kind of we felt as though we weren't we weren't terribly concerned and we felt as though the industry itself has kind of settled the question more or less that transparency is is better and we're happy to be fully transparent. We feel as though that our process is still going to be fairly difficult to replicate. Yes, if the they're going to be available, the holdings will be available, they'll be available often. Uh but we feel as though you're still going to be missing that special sauce that we bring to bear. Uh, in in our models and in the uh, evolution of those models, and it'll be very difficult uh, uh, for uh, an end client to to 
to kind of copy and try to do that on their own. In addition, this, this kind of gets back to your earlier point in the introduction, which is you know, we think these are really, really attractively priced. And the motivation is just is just not there. No, I lo- I mean, the 15 basis points really stood out to me. And I, I was thinking about the factor-based ETF space overall, which I, I think you were alluding to this a bit earlier. This is a pretty crowded space, right? There are a lot of offerings here. And I, th- I think you've done a really great job of laying out the active management component. But when you have that and you combine that with 15 basis points on the cost, that, that's a big deal be- because you're getting into the index-based price range on that. So do you, you want to talk a little bit more about how you price these ETFs? I think that's an important point. Yeah, we think, you know, I, I, I would just echo exactly what you said. We, we, we think we're making a very bold statement here, uh, you know, to the market saying, look, um, why, why would you pay for something that is incredibly simplistic, that uses one or two inputs, that rebalances itself maybe twice a year, that doesn't have the ability to take discretion when anomalies arise, uh, that doesn't really even look at the overall risk posture of the portfolio. We haven't even talked about the risk controls that we have in place. Uh, why, why would you pay 15 basis points for that if that is available to you, uh, in an, all of that is available, in, in a structure for the same cost? So, you know, could we have charged 20 basis points? Could we have charged 25 basis points? I think we easily could have. Very, very justified. But, you know, as you mentioned, it's a crowded space. Uh, We're a new contender to be managing our own ETFs. And we want to make a statement to investors out there to say, look, this is actively managed. Uh, And we think this is really, really good value for your money. Uh, Why why pay for a simplistic approach when you can have an active approach for the same price? I know you're not going to give us your entire uh, ETF playbook moving forward here, but can you tell us anything more about the future ETF roadmap for SEI in terms of what type of ETF business you're hoping to build out? I mean, you, you just walked through, obviously, the active management component. We talked about fees. It's interesting from my perspective because I look at SEI and I think about the opportunity on the RIA custody side. You mentioned uh, you know, ETF model portfolios. I see that as a potential distribution channel. I'd love to just hear higher level, how you look at building out this ETF business. Yeah, we are, we're spending a whole lot of time thinking about that. And, and honestly, we have a, we have a multi-tiered approach. We are, our quant equity team, we think is extremely special. It's very, very unique. Uh, we certainly uh, can, can see an area of building out this team's capabilities by other asset classes. Uh, not just U.S. So, you know, here we have this factor orientation, but it is dominated in the U.S. So taking that globally, taking that even into emerging markets is certainly on the table. I think the theme you'll hear from us uh, um, across any uh, avenue that we uh, decide to go down is active management. Uh, and the one, the one area which we think is very interesting at this point is the multi-managed ETF. So this is something that is not really on the horizon, uh, we have been a manager of managers for quite some time, uh, and it's, uh, that's an area that we think is, uh, again, pretty unique. Uh, it hasn't really been done to any extent in the space, uh, and we think w- there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, ways that we can kind of carve out a niche in the multi-managed ETF space, and that's something we're exploring quite a bit right now. Jim, just a few minutes left here. Obviously, you are the chief investment officer at SEI, so you're clearly involved with more than just the the ETF business, right? You oversee the firm's entire investment research and 
implementation, asset allocation. If you don't mind, I'd love to hear your quick thoughts on the current equity markets right now. Like what has your attention? What's keeping you up at night? What, what, what are a few things you think investors should be watching for right now? It's, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's such an extremely unusual uh, point in time. We, you know, we're, we're at this point where the, you know, the market is really deciding uh, between whether or not we're going to be in to a kind of a reflationary environment or if we're going to fall fully into a stagflationary environment. Um, you know, I think you know, the, 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 the adjustment that the market has made just in the last two weeks has been, has been pretty, pretty amazing, very, very quick seems to really have adopted a negative tone. While I certainly think that uh, there's a good potential that we are going to have a, we're going to print a technical recession here uh, with 2Q numbers, uh, we think it's going to be somewhat shallow. So the, the remainder of 2022, we actually have probably a slightly more positive outlook than what the market is currently pricing in. Uh, that said, uh, we do think that there's plenty of challenges uh, on the horizon. Uh, we are in the stubborn inflation camp. We do think the Fed is going to remain hawkish. But again, if we look at uh, what our view is from an economic and from a monetary policy perspective relative to what the market has priced in, uh, we actually uh, are looking for a bit of a rally here uh, to finish out um, uh, the uh, summer, well, to maybe kick off and, and start really the, the, the true summer with the 4th of July behind us. Um, so summer season, we, we think we have a, a room to move a bit higher. Uh, as we get into the fall and in the winter season, things might get a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit more shaky once again. But we're going to take the over uh, given how far the market has repriced. Well, Jim, excellent perspective. Congratulations on the launch of the ETF lineup. Certainly wish you the, the, the best of luck moving forward. Thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for uh, all the time today. That was Jim Schmeagle, Chief Investment Officer at SEI. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com slash ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. I'm now joined by Nancy Davis, founder and chief investment officer at Quadratic Capital Management. Of course, Nancy is the portfolio manager on the Quadratic Interest Rate Volatility and Inflation Hedge ETF, ticker symbol IVOL, I-V-O-L. That has about $1.7 billion in assets. Nancy also manages the Quadratic Deflation ETF, ticker BNDD, which that just launched in September of last year already has $70 million in uh, assets. And Nancy's now on the line with me from Greenwich, Connecticut. Nancy, always a pleasure. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be your guest again. 
All right, so look, we're going to get into uh, eyeball here in a moment, but I want to start with your thoughts on the current fixed income markets. And I, I thought about this. I'm going to frame this for you a little bit. So I was discussing this earlier with uh, Vetify's Tom Leiden, and I would say for probably most advisors and investors, this is the single biggest challenge right now. I, so I think a lot of investors are struggling with just some of the broad decision-making around bonds. Uh, do you stick with a broad bond allocation and hope rates don't keep rising? Uh, do you shorten up duration and, and maybe even park in cash until uh, things clear up a bit? I think there are some other investors who might say, look, you know, maybe now is a good time to take on some duration risk with the thinking being that the U.S. could be headed for a recession if we're not already in one. And so that, you know, therefore inflation has peaked and rates are going to come back in. I, I think you get the idea. There's obviously a lot for investors to consider. So let, let's start with the obvious here, which is that broad U.S. bonds were down uh, about 11 percent in the first half of the year. As I'm sure you're aware, that's the worst start to a year ever. Do you think we could see a repeat of that in the second half of the year? Or do you think like most of the damage has been done at this point? Well, I think the, the thing that investors really have to keep in mind is if they're using core fixed income um, or core fixed income managers that are benchmarked to uh, what is now called the Bloomberg Ag, the Ag Index that used to be the, the Barclays Ag and before that the Lehman Ag and before that it had different names. But there's no it's not very diversified. And that's the thing we always try to educate investors about. The ag is only short fixed income volatility. I feel like there's a lot of attention on equity volatility, but mortgages are short options because uh, the homeowner is long the option to prepay. Therefore, the owner of the financial mortgage is actually short options to homeowners. And whenever you're short options, you're short ball. This is fixed income ball, net equity ball. But any place investors um, or financial advisors have the ag in their portfolio, they're only giving their clients exposure to short fixed income volatility. Plus, many people don't realize that the ag is not that diversified because the ag does not have any um, inflation-protected bonds. There's no tips inside the ag. So I see a lot of investors who are using eyeball, which is approximately 80% uh, treasury inflation-protected securities plus um, the interest rate options that we own, which is long ball, they're using eyeball as a way to complete their core fixed income exposure and add more of a diversification to the ag. So they're using it as a complement to say, look, we're going to take our ag portfolio, but then we're going to add eyeball to capture inflation-protected treasuries, inflation expectations in the future, and at least neutralize the short volatility that's embedded uh, in the ag exposure, especially with the Fed unwinding their balance sheet, which really just started. Um, Vol has been, uh, in fixed income, been going down uh, with the exception of this year. Now, it's really unclear. Vol works on both sides, whether interest rates are going to go higher or lower. That's really anyone's guess. I think it's hard to speculate on that. But I think the one thing we can count on is that the markets are going to be more fragile less liquidity. The Fed is tightening policy. Inflation is a real, you know, real concern for politicians, especially as we go into midterms. And I think the one thing you got to be aware that the ag is not is not as core as the name might imply. You've mentioned the Fed a couple of times. I'm curious, where do you land on the Fed overall? I, I look at some of these comments from uh, Jerome Powell recently. You, you may have seen this last week when he was asked about inflation. He said, quote, we now understand better how little we understand, which wasn't exactly reassuring. And yeah. from my perspective, you know, look, I'm no uh, economic savant, 
But it seems like the Fed has been asleep at the wheel over the past couple of years. So how do you think the Fed's going to handle things moving forward? Do you think they're now truly committed on tackling inflation? And if so, do you think they can do that without driving the economy into the ground? Well, all markets, including the interest rate markets, move off of future expectations, right? When you buy an equity, it's not based on what that company did last quarter. It's what do you expect in the future? It's all based on multiples and earnings per share growth and expectations for the future. The same principles apply in the inflation and in the rates markets. Um, Ival is kind of unique because with the options piece, we don't really care where interest rates go. We just either want lower, uh, less Fed hike expectations. And right now I'm looking at my Bloomberg screen. There's 163 basis points, 1.63. So over what the Fed's already hiked, priced in just for the end of this year. So less than five months left in the year. You need the Fed to hike more than they already have now just to meet expectations. So Ival can potentially benefit from less Fed hikes or higher long-term yields. And so it's kind of neat because you don't really have to take a bet about what regime we're in. Typically, less Fed hikes would be something bad happening, right? The more negative GDP growth, more stagflationary concerns, lower growth, where the Fed can't actually meet those hawkish expectations, which have already been built into the market pricing. Or if the Fed does hike another, you know, 162 basis points to bring Fed funds above three, You would expect that the 10-year, I'm looking at the generic 10-year right now, it's 283, right? Um, You would expect that 10-year yields would go higher. So I think the unique thing is it doesn't really matter where, um, at least with the options piece inside Eyeball, where interest rates go. We just need them to to move or to either either higher long-term yields or lower front-dated yields. And those environments happen in different, different scenarios. And I think stagflation is something that people really should be worried about because that's, you know, classic definition is, you know, higher prices, but lower growth. And that's typically when both stocks and bonds sell off together, which you can see, you know, the 10-year treasury lost more than the S&P in the first half of the year. (laughs) You know, we're talking about the ag only, but, you know, investing in, uh, you know, 10-year treasury is not risk-free, right? It actually lost more than equities. Nancy, you've you've talked a little bit about what Ival does. I really want to boil this down for advisors and investors just to make sure they understand this. I think there are, there is a segment of people who may look at the CTF and feel like it's it's complicated or complex. And so here's how I thought we might do this. I think a lot of investors are familiar with tips and tips ETFs. And Ival, if you look at the current holdings, it does hold approximately 80% in tips ETFs. The uh, Schwab tips ETF ticker SEHB to be uh, specific. But uh, again, just to boil this down, what's different about owning IVOL versus owning something like SCHP or, or TIP, the iShares Tips ETF, on its own? Yeah, no, thanks, Nate, for asking that question. Both SCHP and TIP are the same passive tips index. The problems that we're trying to fix with IVOL is we have that core tips portfolio, but tips are only reset with the consumer price index. You think about it from equity land. You would never buy the Dow Jones index or the NASDAQ index or the Russell index and say, ta-da, I have U.S. equities. And they're actually more ETFs than stocks, right? So it should be pretty simple to measure the U.S. stock market. It's actually not. And so the problem with tips by themselves is the only way that tips are reset 
is this one index, the Consumer Price Index, which is set by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I always think of that when I go to the DMV. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you know, it's the government. And they can change the basket anytime they want. And a third of the index, you can just type this into Google, Bureau of Labor Statistics CPI basket, a third of that index right now is rent. It's owner-occupied rent. And so a lot of our investors are saying, look, we want future inflation expectations outside of just CPI. So we take that core tips portfolio, and then we add this other measure of inflation expectations outside of CPI. But it's pretty unique because we can also benefit from higher long-term rates. So that's how Eyeballs had, you know, if you look at the uh, second quarter of 2022, we just finished quarter end, and Eyeball had, you know, substantial uh, outperformance um, tips alone were down uh, over 6% that uh, that U.S. tips index, which is what the Schwab and TIP referenced. And Eyeball's NAV was actually up 31 basis points. So think about that. The 80% of the bonds were down 6%, over 6%. Our NAV was up 31 basis points. And that outperformance is because of higher 10-year yields, so the problem with short duration is it's not really short anything, right? It's just less long. So you're still guaranteed if interest rates move higher to lose money. IVAL gives you a way to potentially actually profit from higher long-term yields or less Fed hikes. And that's a really interesting thing because that typically happens in a risk-off period like March 2020. Tips alone were down about 150 to 175 basis points even though we were 85% in tips at the time, Ival had positive performance in that, in that month when equities were selling off and credit spreads were widening. So it's kind of a unique strategy because it can do potentially well in either risk-on or risk-off. Um, and also having that long volatility exposure is when you look at our correlation to other asset classes, it doesn't really look like it has virtually no correlation historically to equities, um, very low correlation to credit, to EM, to VIX. It's just something else. Um, and I think it's really important for investors not to take a bet on where they think interest rates are going to go, but have a way to benefit from increased fixed income volatility, which if they have the ag or any mortgages, a lot of short duration strategies don't take a lot of rate risk, but they add a lot of spread risk. <laughs> so using credit or uh, European banks for floating rate exposure, or mortgages, structured credit, which is just levered mortgages. So it's really important to understand what you own inside these strategies and have diversification so everything doesn't go up or go down all at the same time, right? And that's what we've been very fortunate. Um, with the exception of 22, both stocks and bonds have been going up since the pandemic, and now they're both going down together. Um, I think Ival is a is a really unique. It's a very differentiated strategy. It is a, you know, it is the first of its kind to access this market and to access inflation expectations outside of CPI. All the other uh, ETFs that access inflation either do it with um, tips, which again it's just CPI inflation, or they're accessing things like commodities or cyclical equities. And I think the problem with that is if you look back to the 70s you know, the tips market wasn't even created until 1997. So there's no, I think investors don't realize how much tips are not going to work in an inflationary period because they didn't exist back then. Um, so people look to commodities, whether it's gold 
or oil or cyclical equities or real estate, all these things that existed in the 70s, whereas the rates market, I think, is a very simplistic way of capturing future inflation expectations that investors really should not be taking a bet about whether inflation is transitory or not, because especially if a financial advisor's clients are not working, right, just think about a personal balance sheet, they could have higher costs of living and not benefit from wage inflation. So I think there's never been a more important time in investors' life cycle to be thinking about inflation expectations. And the, the amazing thing, this is really the wild thing, is uh, real yields are back to levels. Um, tips make money when real yields go lower because they're bonds. Real yields are back to the same level right now where they were when Ival first listed in May 2019, which is absolutely incredible. So the market is saying the Fed's going to hike. That's going to slow inflation in the future. And it's a really good time to be buying low, you know, because inflation expectations in the future are expected to decrease. And that's why it's a good time to be adding things like uh, inflation and inflation protection in the future. Because it's not priced in. It's not priced in to be anything other than transitory, even though the Fed has retired that word. Nancy, just a fantastic description. I, I guess, look, just a couple of minutes left here. If, if I had to boil this down, I think you've done a great job of explaining some of the shortcomings just with the aggregate bond, an ETF like AGG or BND. You've compared IVOL to TIP, something like SEHP, uh, TIP. You've talked a little bit about you know, maybe some of the, the shortcomings of moving into floating rate node ETFs, which I know a lot of advisors are doing. I think a lot of advisors are also moving just to shorter duration uh, ETFs overall, something like MI, you know, Mint or JPST. J- just a couple of minutes left. If, if you could leave advisors and investors with some words of wisdom in their fixed income portfolios, we head to the second half of the year, what would those be? Well, number one, um, short duration strategies don't take a lot of rate risk. And they don't have any way to profit from higher interest rates. They just lose less money. So they really should be called less long, not short duration. They're not short anything. They're just less long. And so if you're not taking a lot of rate risk, you typically, they're taking a lot of credit or spread risk, whether it's uh, structured credit. Anytime you see these credit acronyms, that's all structured credit, whether it's um, CMBS, ABS, CMO, CDO, CLO, anything with three-letter acronyms in credit is um, typically linear derivatives and and leverage um, inside of these portfolios. So be very, very careful about the credit and and spread risk. Um, And then also just know that short duration has, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the only way to, to express that view. It doesn't necessarily, nothing in investing is safe. And if you look at a lot of these strategies in March 2020 in particular, you can see when equities sell off, credit spreads tend to widen. So if you have a bond portfolio with a lot of credit risk, you really don't have anything different. You kind of have the same beta as equities because it's the same corporate. It's just a different part of the capital structure. Whether you own, you know, simple example, XYZ company's stock or XYZ company's bonds or loans, you kind of got the same exposure. So I think it's just really important that investors understand what's in these strategies. Don't go by name only. Um, and and understand the credit risk. If they're not taking a lot of rate risk, they're probably taking a lot of credit spread risk. Well, Nancy, I always enjoy visiting. Uh, again, just excellent perspective this week. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. It's great to catch up. That was Nancy Davis, founder and chief investment officer of Quadratic Capital Management.
That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Vanguard. If you would like to learn more about Vanguard's ETFs, you can visit Vanguard.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Phil Huber, CIO at Savant Wealth and author of The Allocator's Edge. We're going to go in-depth on the role of alternative assets in a portfolio. Until then, have a great week, everyone.